Book six, chapter five of the history of the conquest of Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the conquest of Mexico by William H. Prescott. Book six, chapter five. Indian flotilla defeated. The causeways occupied. Desperate assaults. Firing of the palaces. Spirit of the besieged barracks for the troops. No sooner had Cortes received intelligence that his two officers had established themselves in their respective posts, that he ordered Sandoval to march on Iztapalapan. The cavalier's route led him through a country for the most part friendly, and at Chalco his little body of Spaniards was swelled by the formidable muster of Indian levies, who awaited there his approach. After this junction, he continued his march without opposition, till he arrived before the hostile city, under whose walls he found a large force drawn up to receive him. A battle followed, and the natives, after maintaining their ground sturdily for some time, were compelled to give way, and to seek refuge either on the water or in that part of the town which hung over it. The remainder was speedily occupied by the Spaniards. Meanwhile Cortes had set sail with his flotilla, intending to support his lieutenant's attack by water. On drawing near the southern shore of the lake, he passed under the shadow of an insulated peak, since named from him the Rock of the Marquess. It was held by a body of Indians, who saluted the fleet as it passed, with showers of stones and arrows. Cortes, resolving to punish their audacity and to clear the lake of his troublesome enemy, instantly landed with a hundred and fifty of his followers. He placed himself at their head, scaled the steep ascent in the face of a driving storm of missiles, and, reaching the summit, put the garrison to the sword. There was a number of women and children also gathered in the place, whom he spared. On the top of the eminence was a blazing beacon, serving to notify to the inhabitants of the capital when the Spanish fleet weighed anchor. Before Cortes had regained his brigantine, the canoes and piraguas of the enemy had left the harbors of Mexico, and were seen darkening the lake for many a rood. There were several hundred of them, all crowded with warriors, and advancing rapidly by means of their oars over the calm bosom of the waters. Cortes, who regarded his fleet, to use his own language, as the key of the war, felt the importance of striking a decisive blow in the first encounter with the enemy. It was with chagrin, therefore, that he found his sails rendered useless by the want of wind. He calmly waited the approach of the Indian squadron, which, however, lay on their oars at something more than musket-shot distance, as if hesitating to encounter these leviathans of their waters. At this moment a light air from land rippled the surface of the lake, it gradually freshened into a breeze, and Cortes, taking advantage of the friendly succor, which he may be excused under all the circumstances for regarding as especially sent him by heaven, extended his line of battle and bore down, under full press of canvas, on the enemy. The latter no sooner encountered the bows of their formidable opponents then they were overturned and sent to the bottom by the shock, or so much damaged that they speedily filled and sank. The water was covered with the wreck of broken canoes, and with the bodies of men struggling for life in the waves, and vainly imploring their companions to take them on board their overcrowded vessels. The Spanish fleet, as it dashed through the mob of boats, sent off its volleys to the right and left with a terrible effect, completing the discomfiture of the Aztecs. The latter made no attempt at resistance, scarcely venturing a single flight of arrows, but strove with all their strength to regain the port from which they had so lately issued. 
they were no match in the chase any more than in the fight, for their terrible antagonist, who, borne on the wings of the wind, careered to and fro at his pleasure, dealing death widely around him, and making the shores ring with the thunders of his ordnance. A few only of the Indian flotilla succeeded in recovering the port, and, gliding up the canals, found a shelter in the bosom of the city, where the heavier burden of the brigantines made it impossible for them to follow. This victory, more complete than even the sanguine temper of Cortes had prognosticated, proved the superiority of the Spaniards, and left them henceforth undisputed masters of the Aztec Sea. It was nearly dusk when the squadron, coasting along the great southern causeway, anchored off the point of junction, called Cholac, where the branch from Cohoacan meets the principal dike. The avenue widened at this point, so as to afford room for two towers, or turreted temples, built of stone and surrounded by walls of the same material, which presented altogether a position of some strength, and, at the present moment, was garrisoned by a body of Aztecs. They were not numerous, and Cortes, landing with his soldiers, succeeded without much difficulty in dislodging the enemy, and in getting possession of the works. It seems to have been originally the general's design to take up his own quarters with Olid at Cohoacan. But, if so, he now changed his purpose, and wisely fixed on this spot as the best position for his encampment. It was but half a league distant from the capital, and, while it commanded its great southern avenue, had a direct communication with the garrison at Cohoacan, through which he might receive supplies from the surrounding country. Here, then, he determined to establish his headquarters. He at once caused his heavy iron cannon to be transferred from the brigantines to the causeway, and sent orders to Olid to join him with half his force, while Sandoval was instructed to abandon his present quarters and advance to Cohoacan, whence he was to detach fifty picked men of his infantry to the camp of Cortes. Having made these arrangements, the general busily occupied himself with strengthening the works at Xoloc and putting them in the best posture of defense. The two principal avenues to Mexico, those on the south and the west, were now occupied by the Christians. There still remained a third, the great dike of Tepehacac, on the north, which, indeed, taking up the principal street, which passed in a direct line through the heart of the city, might be regarded as a continuation of the dike of Iztapalapan. By this northern route a means of escape was still left open to the besieged, and they availed themselves of it at present, to maintain their communications with the country, and to supply themselves with provisions. Alvarado, who observed this from his station at Tacuba, advised his commander of it, and the latter instructed Sandoval to take up his position on the causeway. That officer, though suffering at the time from a severe wound received from a lance in one of the late skirmishes, hastened to obey, and thus, by shutting up its only communication with the surrounding country, completed the blockade of the capital but Cortes was not content to wait patiently the effects of a dilatory blockade, which might exhaust the patience of his allies and his own resources. He determined to support it by such active assaults on the city as should still further distress the besieged and hasten the hour of surrender. For this purpose he ordered a simultaneous attack by the two commanders at the other stations on the quarters nearest their encampments. On the day appointed his forces were under arms with the dawn, mass as usual was performed and the indian confederates as they listened with grave attention to the stately and imposing service regarded with undisguised admiration the devotional reverence shown by the christians whom in their simplicity 
they looked upon as a little less than divinities themselves. The Spanish infantry marched in the van, led on by Cortes, attended by a number of cavaliers, dismounted like himself. They had not moved far upon the causeway when they were brought to a stand by one of the open breaches that had formerly been traversed by a bridge. On the further side a solid rampart of stone and lime had been erected, and behind this a strong body of Aztecs were posted, who discharged on the Spaniards as they advanced a thick volley of arrows. The latter vainly endeavored to dislodge them with their firearms and crossbows. They were too well secured behind their defenses. Cortes then ordered two of the brigantines, which had kept along, one on each side of the causeway, in order to cooperate with the army, to station themselves so as to enfilade the position occupied by the enemy. Thus placed between two well-directed fires, the Indians were compelled to recede. The soldiers on board the vessels, springing to land, bounded like deer up the sides of the dike. They were soon followed by their countrymen under Cortes, who, throwing themselves into the water, swam the undefended chasm and joined in pursuit of the enemy. The Mexicans fell back, however, in something like order, until they reached another opening in the dike, like the former, dismantled of its bridge, and fortified in the same manner by a bulwark of stone, behind which the retreating Aztecs, swimming across the chasm, and reinforced by fresh bodies of their countrymen, again took shelter. They made good their post, till, again assailed by the cannonade from the brigantines, they were compelled to give way. In this manner, breach after breach was carried, and, at every fresh instance of success, a shout went up from the crews of the vessels, which, answered by the long files of the Spaniards and their confederates on the causeway, made the valley echo to its borders. Cortes had now reached the end of the great avenue, where it entered the suburbs. There he halted to give time for the rear guard to come up with him. It was detained by the labor of filling up the breaches in such a manner as to make a practicable passage for the artillery and horse, and to secure one for the rest of the army on its retreat. This important duty was entrusted to the allies, who executed it by tearing down the ramparts on the margins and throwing them into the chasms, and, when this was not sufficient, for the water was deep around the southern causeway, by dislodging the great stones and rubbish from the dike itself, which was broad enough to admit of it, and adding them to the pile until it was raised above the level of the water. The street on which the Spaniards now entered was the great avenue that intersected the town from north to south, and the same by which they had first visited the capital. It was broad and perfectly straight, and, in the distance, dark masses of warriors might be seen gathering to the support of their countrymen, who were prepared to dispute the further progress of the Spaniards. The sides were lined with buildings, the terraced roofs of which were also crowned with combatants, who, as the army advanced, poured down a pitiless storm of missiles on their heads, which glanced harmless, indeed, from the coat of mail, but too often found their way through the more common escalpel of the soldier, already gaping with many a ghastly rent. Cortes, to rid himself of this annoyance for the future, ordered his Indian pioneers to level the principal buildings as they advanced, in which work of demolition, no less than the repair of the breaches, they proved of inestimable service. The Spaniards, meanwhile, were steadily but slowly advancing as the enemy recoiled before the rolling fire of musketry, though turning at intervals to discharge their javelins and arrows against their pursuers. In this way they kept along the great street, until their course was interrupted by a wide ditch or canal, once traversed by a bridge, of which only a few planks now remained. 
These were broken by the Indians the moment they had crossed, and a formidable array of spears were instantly seen bristling over the summit of a solid rampart of stone which protected the opposite side of the canal. Cortes was no longer supported by his brigantines, which the shallowness of the canals prevented from penetrating into the suburbs. He brought forward his arquebusiers, who, protected by the targets of their comrades, opened a fire on the enemy. But the balls fell harmless from the bulwarks of stone, while the assailants presented but too easy a mark to their opponents. The general then caused the heavy guns to be brought up and opened a lively cannonade, which soon cleared a breach in the works, through which the musketeers and crossbowmen poured in their volleys thick as hail. The Indians now gave way in disorder after having held their antagonists at bay for two hours. The latter, jumping into the shallow water, scaled the opposite bank without further resistance, and drove the enemy along the street towards the square, where the sacred pyramid reared its colossal bulk high over the other edifices of the city. It was a spot too familiar to the Spaniards. At one side stood the palace of Ashakayato, their old quarters, the scene to many of them of too much suffering. Opposite was a pile of low, irregular buildings, once the residence of the unfortunate Montezuma, while the third side of the square was flanked by the Quatapantli, or Wall of Serpents, which encompassed the great Teocali with its little city of holy edifices. The Spaniards halted at the entrance of the square, as if oppressed and for a moment overpowered, by the bitter recollections that crowded on their minds. But their intrepid leader, impatient at their hesitation, loudly called on them to advance before the Aztecs had time to rally, and grasping his target in one hand, and waving his sword high above his head with the other, he cried his war-cry of, St. Iago, and led them at once against the enemy. The Mexicans, intimidated by the presence of their detested foe, who, in spite of all their efforts, had again forced his way into the heart of their city, made no further resistance, but retreated, or rather fled, for refuge into the sacred enclosure of the Teocali, where the numerous buildings scattered over its ample area afforded many good points of defense. A few priests, clad in their usual wild and blood-stained vestments, were to be seen lingering on the terraces which wound round the stately sides of the pyramid, chanting hymns in honor of their god, and encouraging the warriors below to battle bravely for his altars. The Spaniards poured through the open gates into the area, and a small party rushed up the winding corridors to its summit. No vestige now remained there of the cross, or of any other symbol of the pure faith to which it had been dedicated. A new effigy of the Aztec war-god had taken the place of the one demolished by the Christians, and raised its fantastic and hideous form in the same niche which had been occupied by its predecessor. The Spaniards soon tore away its golden mask and the rich jewels with which it was bedizened, and hurling the struggling priests down the sides of the pyramid, made the best of their way to their comrades in the area. It was full time. The Aztecs, indignant at the sacrilegious outrage perpetrated before their eyes, and gathering courage from the inspiration of the place, under the very presence of their deities, raised a yell of horror and vindictive fury, as, throwing themselves into something like order, they sprang by a common impulse on the Spaniards. The latter, who had halted near the entrance, though taken by surprise, made an effort to maintain their position at the gateway. But in vain, for the headlong rush of the assailants drove them at once into the square, where they were attacked by other bodies of Indians, pouring in from the neighboring streets. Broken and losing their presence of mind, the troops made no attempt to rally, 
but, crossing the square, and abandoning the cannon planted there to the enemy, they hurried down the great street of Iztapalapan. Here they were soon mingled with the allies, who choked up the way, and who, catching the panic of the Spaniards, increased the confusion, while the eyes of the fugitives, blinded by the missiles that rained on them from the azoteas, were scarcely capable of distinguishing friend from foe. In vain Cortes endeavored to stay the torrent and to restore order. His voice was drowned in the wild uproar, as he was swept away like driftwood by the fury of the current. All seemed to be lost, when suddenly sounds were heard in an adjoining street, like the distant tramp of horses galloping rapidly over the pavement. They drew nearer and nearer, and a body of cavalry soon emerged on the great square. Though but a handful in number, they plunged boldly into the thick of the enemy. We have often had occasion to notice the superstitious dread entertained by the Indians of the horse and its rider, and, although the long residence of the cavalry in the capital had familiarized the natives, in some measure with their presence, so long a time had now elapsed since they had beheld them, that all their former mysterious terrors revived in full force, and, when thus suddenly assailed in flank by the formidable apparition, they were seized with a panic and fell into confusion. It soon spread to the leading files, and Cortes, perceiving his advantage, turned with the rapidity of lightning, and, at this time supported by his followers, succeeded in driving the enemy with some loss back into the enclosure. It was now the hour of vespers, and, as night must soon overtake them, he made no further attempt to pursue his advantage. Ordering the trumpets, therefore, to sound a retreat, he drew off his forces in good order, taking with him the artillery which had been abandoned in the square. The allies first went off the ground, followed by the Spanish infantry, while the rear was protected by the horse, thus reversing the order of march on their entrance. The Aztecs hung on the enclosing files, and though driven back by frequent charges of the cavalry, still followed in the distance, shooting off their ineffectual missiles, and filling the air with wild cries and howling, like a herd of ravenous wolves disappointed of their prey. It was late before the army reached its quarters at Xoloc. Cortes had been well supported by Alvarado and Sandoval in this assault on the city, though neither of these commanders had penetrated the suburbs, deterred perhaps by the difficulties of the passage, which in Alvarado's case were greater than those presented to Cortes, from the greater number of breaches with which the dike in his quarter was intersected. Something was owing, too, to the want of the brigantines, until Cortes supplied the deficiency by detaching half of his little navy to the support of his officers. Without their cooperation, however, the general himself could not have advanced so far, nor, perhaps, have succeeded at all in setting foot within the city. The success of this assault spread consternation not only among the Mexicans, but their vassals, as they saw that the formidable preparations for defense were to avail little against the white man, who had so soon, in spite of them, forced his way into the very heart of the capital. Several of the neighboring places, in consequence, now showed a willingness to shake off their allegiance, and claimed the protection of the Spaniards. Among these were the territory of Xochimilco, so roughly treated by the invaders, and some tribes of Otomies, a rude but valiant people, who dwelt on the western confines of the valley. Their support was valuable not so much from the additional reinforcement which it brought, as from the greater security it gave to the army whose outposts were perpetually menaced by these warlike barbarians. Thus strengthened, Cortes prepared to make another attack upon the capital, and that before it should have time to recover from the former. 
orders were given to his lieutenants on the other causeways to march at the same time and cooperate with him as before in the assault. It was conducted in precisely the same manner as on the previous entry, the infantry taking the van, and the allies and cavalry following. But, to the great dismay of the Spaniards, they found two-thirds of the breaches restored to their former state, and the stones and other materials with which they had been stopped removed by the indefatigable enemy. They were again obliged to bring up the cannon, the brigantines ran alongside, and the enemy was dislodged and driven from post to post, in the same manner as on the preceding attack. In short, the whole work was to be done over again. It was not until an hour after noon that the army had won a footing in the suburbs. Here their progress was not so difficult as before, for the buildings from the terraces of which they had experienced the most annoyance had been swept away. Still, it was only step by step that they forced a passage in face of the Mexican militia, who disputed their advance with the same spirit as before. Cortez, who would willingly have spared the inhabitants if he could have brought them to terms, saw them with regret, as he says, thus desperately bent on a war of extermination. He conceived that there would be no way more likely to affect their minds than by destroying at once some of the principal edifices which they were accustomed to venerate as the pride and ornament of the city. Marching into the great square, he selected, as the first to be destroyed, the old palace of Eshayacato, his former barracks. The ample range of low buildings was, it is true, constructed of stone, but the interior, as well as outworks, its turrets and roofs, were of wood. The Spaniards, whose associations with the pile were of so gloomy a character, sprang to the work of destruction with a satisfaction like that which the French mob may have felt in the demolition of the Bastille. Torches and firebrands were thrown about in all directions, the lower parts of the building were speedily on fire, which, running along the inflammable bangings and woodwork of the interior, rapidly spread to the second floor. There the element took freer range, and, before it was visible from without, sent up from every aperture and crevice a dense column of vapor that hung like a funeral pall over the city. This was dissipated by a bright sheet of flame, which enveloped all the upper regions of the vast pile, till, the supporters giving way, the wide range of turreted chambers fell, amidst clouds of dust and ashes, with an appalling crash, that for a moment stayed the Spaniards in the work of devastation. The Aztecs gazed with inexpressible horror on this destruction of the venerable abode of their monarchs, and of the monuments of their luxury and splendor. Their rage was exasperated almost to madness, as they beheld their hated foes, the Tlaxcalans, busy in the work of desolation, and aided by the Tezcucans, their own allies, and not unfrequently their kinsmen. They vented their fury in bitter execrations, especially on the young prince Itzlil Xochitl, who, marching side by side with Cortes, took his full share in the dangers of the day. The warriors from the housetops poured the most opprobrious epithets on him as he passed, denouncing him as a false-hearted traitor, false to his country and his blood, reproaches not altogether unmerited, as his kinsman, who chronicles the circumstance, candidly confesses. He gave little heed to their taunts, however, holding on his way with a dogged resolution of one true to the cause in which he was embarked and, when he entered the great square, he grappled with the leader of the Aztec forces, wrenched a lance from his grasp, won by the latter from the Christians, and dealt him a blow with his mace, or maquahuitl, which brought him lifeless to the ground. The Spanish commander, having accomplished the work of destruction, 
sounded a retreat, sending on the Indian allies who blocked up the way before him. The Mexicans, maddened by their losses, in wild transports of fury hung close on his rear, and though driven back by the cavalry, still returned, throwing themselves desperately under the horses, striving to tear the riders from their saddles, and content to throw away their own lives for one blow at their enemy. Fortunately, the greater part of their militia was engaged with the assailants on the opposite quarters of the city, but, thus crippled, they pushed the Spaniards under Cortes so vigorously that few reached the camp that night without bearing on their bodies some token of the desperate conflict. On the following day, and indeed on several days following, the general repeated his assaults with as little care for repose as if he and his men had been made of iron. On one occasion he advanced some way down the street of Tacuba, in which he carried three of the bridges, desirous, if possible, to open a communication with Alvarado, posted on the contiguous causeway. But the Spaniards in that quarter had not penetrated beyond the suburbs, still impeded by the severe character of the ground, and wanting, it may be, somewhat of that fiery impetuosity which the soldier feels who fights under the eye of his chief. In each of these assaults, the breaches were found more or less restored to their original state by the pertinacious Mexicans, and the materials which had been deposited in them with so much labor again removed. It may seem strange that Cortes did not take measures to guard against the repetition of an act which caused so much delay and embarrassment to his operations. He notices this in his letter to the emperor, in which he says that to do so would have required either that he should have established his quarters in the city itself, which would have surrounded him with enemies and cut off his communications with the country, or that he should have posted a sufficient guard of Spaniards, for the natives were out of the question, to support the breaches by night, a duty altogether beyond the strength of men engaged in so arduous a service through the day. Yet this was the course adopted by Alvarado, who stationed at night a guard of forty soldiers for the defense of the opening nearest to the enemy. This was relieved by a similar detachment in a few hours, and this again by a third, the two former still lying on their post, so that, on an alarm, a body of one hundred and twenty soldiers was ready on the spot to repel an attack. Sometimes, indeed, the whole division took up their bivouac in the neighborhood of the breach, resting on their arms and ready for instant action. But a life of such incessant toil and vigilance was almost too severe even for the stubborn constitutions of the Spaniards. Through the long night, exclaims Diaz, who served in Alvarado's division, we kept our dreary watch, neither wind nor wet nor cold availing anything. There we stood, smarting as we were, from the wounds we had received in the fight of the preceding day. It was the rainy season, which continues in that country from July to September, and the surface of the causeways, flooded by the storms and broken up by the constant movement of such large bodies of men, was converted into a marsh, or rather quagmire, which added inconceivably to the distresses of the army. The troops under Cortes were scarcely in a better situation, but few of them could find shelter in the rude towers that garnished the works of Sholok. The greater part were compelled to bivouac in the open air, exposed to all the inclemency of the weather. Every man, unless his wounds prevented it, was required by the camp regulations to sleep on his arms, and they were often roused from their hasty slumbers by the midnight call to battle. For Guatamozin, contrary to the usual practice of his countrymen, frequently selected the hours of darkness to aim a blow at the enemy. In short, exclaims the veteran soldier above quoted, 
so unintermitting were our engagements by day and by night during the three months in which we lay before the capital that to recount them all would exhaust the reader's patience and make him to fancy he was pursuing the incredible feats of a knight-errant of romance the aztec emperor conducted his operations on a systematic plan which showed some approach to military science he not unfrequently made simultaneous attacks on the three several divisions of the spaniards established on the causeways and on the garrisons at their extremities to accomplish this he enforced the service not merely of his own militia of the capital but of the great towns in the neighborhood who all moved in concert at the well-known signal of the beacon fire or of the huge drum struck by the priests on the summit of the temple one of these general attacks it was observed whether from accident or design took place on the eve of St. John the Baptist, the anniversary of the day on which the Spaniards made their second entry into the Mexican capital. Notwithstanding the severe drain on his forces by this incessant warfare, the young monarch contrived to relieve them in some degree by different detachments who took the place of one another. This was apparent from the different uniforms and military badges of the Indian battalions, who successively came and disappeared from the field. At night a strict guard was maintained in the Aztec quarters, a thing not common with the nations of the plateau. The outposts of the hostile armies were stationed within sight of each other. That of the Mexicans was usually placed in the neighborhood of some wide breach, and its position was marked by a large fire in front. The hours for relieving guard were intimated by the shrill Aztec whistle, while bodies of men might be seen moving behind the flame, which threw a still ruddier glow over the cinnamon-colored skins of the warriors. While thus active on land, Guatimozin was not idle on the water. He was too wise, indeed, to cope with the Spanish navy again in open battle, but he resorted to stratagem, so much more congenial to Indian warfare. He placed a large number of canoes in ambuscade along the tall reeds which fringed the southern shores of the lake, and caused piles at the same time to be driven into the neighboring shallows. Several paraguas, or boats of a larger size, then issued forth, and rowed near the spot where the Spanish brigantines were moored. Two of the smallest vessels, supposing the Indian barks were conveying provisions to the besieged, instantly stood after them, as had been foreseen. The Aztec boats fled for shelter to the reedy thicket, where their companions lay in ambush. The Spaniards, following, were soon entangled among the palisades under the water. They were instantly surrounded by a whole swarm of Indian canoes, most of the men were wounded, several, including the two commanders, slain, and one of the brigantines fell, a useless prize, into the hands of the victors. Among the slain was Pedro Barba, captain of the crossbowmen, a gallant officer, who had highly distinguished himself in the conquest. This disaster occasioned much mortification to Cortes. It was a salutary lesson that stood him in good stead during the remainder of the war. It may appear extraordinary that Guatimozin should have been able to provide for the maintenance of the crowded population now gathered in the metropolis, especially as the avenues were all in possession of the besieging army. But, independently of the preparations made with this view before the siege, and of the loathsome sustenance daily furnished by the victims for sacrifice, supplies were constantly obtained from the surrounding country across the lake. This was so conducted for a time, as in a great measure to escape observation, and even when the brigantines were commanded to cruise day and night, and sweep the waters of the boats employed in this service, many still contrived, under cover of the darkness, to elude the vigilance of the cruisers, and brought their cargoes into port. 
it was not till the great towns in the neighborhood cast off their allegiance that the supply began to fall from the failure of its sources the defection was more frequent as the inhabitants became convinced that the government incompetent to its own defense must be still more so to theirs and the aztec metropolis saw its greatest vassals fall off one after another as the tree over which decay is stealing parts with its leaves in the first blast of the tempest the cities which now claimed the spanish general's protection supplied the camp with an incredible number of warriors a number which if we admit cortez's own estimate one hundred and fifty thousand could have only served to embarrass his operations in the long extended causeways these levies were distributed among the three garrisons at the terminations of the causeways and many found active employment in foraging the country for provisions and yet more in carrying on hostilities against the places still unfriendly to the spaniards cortez found further occupation for them in the construction of barracks for his troops who suffered greatly from exposure to the incessant rains of the season which were observed to fall more heavily by night than by day quantities of stone and timber were obtained from the buildings that had been demolished in the city they were transported in the brigantines to the causeway and from these materials a row of huts or barracks was constructed extending on either side of the works of Xoloc. by this arrangement ample accommodations were furnished for the spanish troops and their indian attendants amounting in all to about two thousand the great body of the allies with a small detachment of horse and infantry were quartered at the neighboring post of cohoacan which served to protect the rear of the encampment and to maintain its communications with the country a similar disposition of forces took place in the other divisions of the army under alvarado and sandoval though the accommodations provided for the shelter of the troops on their causeways were not so substantial as those for the division of cortez the spanish camp was supplied with provisions from the friendly towns in the neighborhood and especially from tezcuco they consisted of fish the fruits of the country particularly a sort of fig borne by the tuna captus obtunia and a species of cherry or something much resembling it which grew abundant at this season but their principal food was the tortillas cakes of indian meal still common in mexico for which bakehouses were established under the care of the natives in the garrison towns commanding the causeways the aries as appears too probable reinforced their frugal fare with an occasional banquet of human flesh for which the battlefield unhappily afforded them too much facility and which however shocking to the feelings of cortez he did not consider himself in a situation at that moment to prevent thus the tempest which had been so long mustering broke at length in all its fury on the aztec capital its unhappy inmates beheld the hostile legions encompassing them about with their glittering files stretching as far as the eye could reach they saw themselves deserted by their allies and vassals in their utmost need the fierce stranger penetrating into their secret places violating their temples plundering their palaces wasting the fair city by day firing its suburbs by night and entrenching himself in solid edifices under their walls as if determined never to withdraw his foot while one stone remained upon another all this they saw yet their spirits were unbroken and though famine and pestilence were beginning to creep over them they still showed the same determined front to their enemies cortez who would gladly have spared the town and its inhabitants beheld this resolution with astonishment he intimated more than once by means of the prisoners whom he released his willingness to grant them fair terms of capitulation 
Day after day he fully expected his proffers would be accepted, but day after day he was disappointed. He had yet to learn how tenacious was the memory of the Aztecs, and that, whatever might be the horrors of their present situation and their fears for the future, they were all forgotten in their hatred of the white man. End of Book 6, Chapter 5